Hebrews 11, and I'll be reading verses 17 through 19. This is Abraham's third story, or fourth, if we count it with him and Sarah. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, which, figuratively speaking, or better, in a figure, he did receive him back. Now, rather than refer to uh, this story in Genesis 22 and go back and forth so many times, I also want to read the story this is rooted in, the first 14 verses of Genesis 22. So, hear the story. After these things, after God had blessed Abraham with incredible riches, uh, victory over his enemies, and that son that he had waited so long for, that special heir, that one and only son, in a sense, Isaac. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning. That's faith in action. <laughs> so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. 
For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. In Hebrews 11 and verse 17, we return to the familiar opening phrase of every one of these stories, by faith. I remind you that this is saving faith and the root of all of Abraham's God-honoring actions. His heart had been renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit and faith had been implanted into him. And since, as both the Proverbs and Jesus taught, out of the heart flow the issues of life, in what Abraham does, well, it's all done in faith. By faith, Abraham faces first God's test. God's test. Verse 17 simply says that Abraham was tested. But lest we think this was a test presented by the devil or some Moloch-like religion or even Abraham's wicked imagination. Genesis 22.1 plainly states, God tested Abraham and said to him, take your only son and offer him as a burnt offering. The test came in the form of a clear command from God. He was demanding of Abraham that the son of the promise be put to death by his own hand as a sacrifice. This is often called the greatest test of faith in the Old Testament. And part of the reason for that is surely the love that Abraham had for Isaac. Fathers ordinarily love their sons, don't they? But as one gained late in life, through miraculous means, Abraham surely loved Isaac in a more than ordinary way. The Lord recognized this. He even put this fact right into the body of the command, describing Isaac not just as your son, but the son that you love. So the story has a poignancy that literally takes our breath away. It is hard to read. <laughs> the pathos, the emotional turmoil created by God's command has been recognized by centuries, for centuries. Not only Jewish and Christian commentators, but philosophers such as Soren Kierkegaard, the father of modern existentialism, They've all been fascinated by this story as a study in ethics and emotions 
in life's difficult choices. This is Kierkegaard's teaching of existential angst. So Abraham's love for Isaac surely plays a role in making this a great test from God. But others, when they hear this story, focus on the moral dilemma that God's command presents. Their claim is that God is here wickedly ordering Abraham to commit murder. Now, interestingly, if we look at our Bible, every place this story is told, and it's told more than once, we never read that, do we? We don't get the sense that God or the human-inspired authors are worried about this so-called moral dilemma. And this, of course, is because the Bible has a very different view of right and wrong in relation to God than most people have. Most human beings are quite glad, thank you, to judge God according to their self-defined standard of justice. To use C.S. Lewis's famous phrase, they like to put God in the dock. That is, men put God on trial, and that's what they do when they hear this story. They don't see God as the judge and themselves as the accused. Rather, most human beings stand over God in judgment. But the Holy Scriptures correct this self-idolatry by reminding us that God is the creator and therefore the owner of all things. And he has an absolute right to do whatever he wants to do with any and every person. He is even allowed, if we may use such silly language, to bring life back to himself that he has given. Now, this story must be seen as God's test, not first of Abraham's love, although that's true, and even less as a moral dilemma. This story must be known as a test of faith. Why? Because that's how Hebrews presents it. That's how Romans and James and Genesis present it, as a test of faith. How is Abraham described in verse 17? Well, he's, he's named, of course, but he's described in the middle of the verse as, he who had received the promises. Ah, there's the rub. Abraham had received a promise from God. And all of these promises depended upon Isaac, verse 18, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. These promises didn't run through Abraham's chief servant, Eliezer of Damascus. They didn't even run through another biological son of his, Ishmael. They all and only ran through Isaac. They could only come to fruition in Isaac. So God has apparently given a command to Abraham that overthrows his own a promise to Abraham. And that's Abraham's test of faith. If Isaac is killed, fulfillment of the promise would seem to be impossible. 
This is why Isaac is called Abraham's only son or only begotten son. Obviously, he's not his only son biologically, but he is his only heir. The single individual through whom the promise will be made good. It's only through this one that the Christ can come. One man has said, when Abraham obeyed God's mandate to leave Ur, he gave up his past. But when he was summoned to deliver his son to God, he was asked to surrender his future as well. Yes, yes. Would the command undo the promise? You see, at its core, that's the test. That's the test. Would Abraham believe God? Would he continue a man of faith? So we ask, what does Abraham do? That brings us to our second point. Abraham's response. And here's what it is. Abraham immediately obeys God. This is astonishing. <laughs> this is really astonishing. Abraham... Uh, yeah, Abraham does this astonishing act of faith. In Genesis 22 and verse 3, remember it told us, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men and his son Isaac. He cut wood, went to the place God had told him. He went about the business immediately of obeying God. Then in Hebrews 11:17. This is all summed up this way. By faith, Abraham offered up Isaac. Again, faith moved Abraham to immediate obedience. But, but we say, wait a minute. Where are the requests for explanation? <laughs> Where are the, uh, I couldn't have possibly heard that right. Could you repeat that, God? Where's the arguing with God? Where's the bargaining with God? Where are the questions about how can you be good and demand this of me? How can you be wise and command me to do this? Where is all of that? It's not here. Abraham didn't utter threats and doesn't even say, what? <laughs> he just obeys God. But how did he obey? Well, remember, God commanded that Isaac be sacrificed. And there are in these verses, verses 17, verse 17, two descriptions of Abraham's actions. The first description, which we've already read, it's the short one, by faith Abraham offered up Isaac, is this action described by Abraham's intention. And then later in the verse, it's described how it actually happened. It's described in deed, right? Abraham is clearly committed to obeying God. He makes preparations even to the point of laying a bound Isaac on an altar. He never flinched. We don't see any delaying tactics. We just see ready obedience. 
He is completely committed to obeying God. Abraham's intention was to offer up Isaac, which means that Isaac was as good as dead to Abraham. In fact, we might even say, Isaac died three days ago. (laughs) From the point of the command, Abraham was committed to obeying God. Isaac was as good as dead. And God takes his willingness as if it were the act itself. As he so often does with his children in mercy. (laughs) But then what happened, not just in Abraham's mind and intention, but in real practice, in actuality is described. Abraham is in the act of sacrificing Isaac The knife is raised. Death is inches and seconds away when God rescinds his command. Abraham didn't complete sacrificing Isaac. He had begun to obey with a heart completely given to it, but then at God's kind interruption, what does he do? He again obeys God. Right? And thankfully, he did it immediately. He lowers the knife. In all of this, Abraham's unreserved allegiance to God is on display. How in the world could Abraham respond in such a way to such a command? How could he, by faith, display immediate obedience? And that brings us to our third point, and what's so important in the text, and that is Abraham's thinking. Abraham's thinking. How did Abraham resolve this apparent conflict between God's command and God's promise? How did he deal with this test of faith? Remember back in verse 10, in another test, Abraham acted in faith the way he did because he had reasons. He had good reasons for God for why he acted the way he did. And so it is here. Verse 19 answers this way. Abraham considered that God. Abraham considered. That means he reasoned or thought about all this out of a framework of faith in God and truth about God, and he reached a conclusion. That's what the word means. Abraham concluded that God... He didn't respond to this difficulty of the promise and command by giving up or by going mad. We've all heard of people who seem to have just lost it when some pressure in life, it it just got too much. Abraham doesn't do that. Or by dreaming up fairy tales or by abandoning faith in God. He doesn't do any of that. 
Instead, what Abraham does is he takes stock of everything he knows about God, especially his promises, his power, and his work in his own life in the past. Abraham's feet are planted firmly in reality, folks. Make no mistake, he is not so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good. He is not in any way living out a fantasy here. This is real life. This is an existential event for sure. And Abraham makes a choice. So Abraham soundly, reasonably concludes that after he kills Isaac, God will raise him from the dead. How could it be any other way? God had promised blessing through Isaac. He cannot lie. That must come true. So Isaac has to live. And if it means that he's got to die first, well, then he'll live again later. God could raise him up again. Abraham knew God's word of promise was sure, that he was completely trustworthy. And he'd also known God's power in his own life. Remember, he and Sarah were both, what? Reproductively dead. And what did God do? God made them alive. He resurrected them so that Isaac could be conceived and born. So Abraham knew from his own life experience, not just what God had said to him and told him, but he knew that God could raise the dead to life. Amen. This teaches us that saving faith is rooted in the knowledge of God. You know, we're often told really stupid things like faith is blind or religion is mindless. To the contrary, saving faith is based on revelation and has truth for its content. Abraham did not take a leap in the dark, as existentialism suggests. No, he leapt into the light. He leapt into the truth that God had told him. He threw himself into his father's utterly trustworthy arms. Amen. That's good. He leapt into the arms of a trustworthy God who had revealed his person, his power, and his promises. And that God could be counted on by faith. That God has the power to raise the dead. That God always kept his promises. And so in Genesis 22, verse 5, after reasoning this way so that he immediately, immediately obeys, what does he say? He says to his servants, uh, we're almost there. You stay here. Watch the donkey. Uh, the boy and I will go over there, and we will worship, and we will come again to you. There's faith. There's belief in the resurrection. You see, Abraham expected to walk a little further and worship by sacrificing Isaac, 
and then receive the resurrected Isaac back before returning to the servants. Whenever I think about this story, I always think, what was he going to tell Sarah? <laughs> well, he, he, he doesn't have to tell Sarah anything. <laughs> Abraham's faith resulted in obedience and right reasoning. The people most in touch with reality are people of faith. Amen. <laughs> it's the people who think that they directly are in touch with reality who are usually the most out of it because they've left God out of the equation. Right? This brings us to God's blessing. This, of course, is that God gave Isaac back to Abraham because of his faith. The verse is, the structure of the Greek is very plain. It was because of his faith that God raises Isaac. In other words, he gives him the faith to believe, to do, to think this way, and then when he exercises it, he rewards him. Isaac wasn't sacrificed. So God didn't physically raise him from the dead as Abraham thought was going to be necessary. This reminds us that God has the freedom to resolve the conflict between promise and commandment in any way he pleases. He can do these things in a multitude of ways. Abraham thought of one valid way. God decided not to do it that way. God resolved the conflict between the promise and the command by giving another command. Abraham, put down the knife, spare your son's life. So this is a different kind of raising the dead. Remember, he's been dead for three days. The last per part of verse 19 says, from which he did receive him back. Now, you might think from the ESV translation that the from which just refers to like the dead or the grave or the, but actually it very clearly points back to his faith, to Abraham's considering. So God was responding to Abraham's faith by blessing him. Isaac's life is not just a kind of resurrection. It's a resurrection as a reward to Abraham's trust in God. The promise is no longer in jeopardy. Abraham has a future in Isaac by God's blessing that comes by faith. And that brings us to the fifth and final point. Something you may not see in your text, Hebrews, but it's there. Christ's resurrection. Christ's resurrection. Where is that in the text, Pastor? It's in verse 19, actually. Your version might say something like, um, figuratively speaking. That's not the best translation. It would be better to simply say it as it is, in a figure, in a foreshadowing, in a type, in a picture. 
in a parable of the future. That's what the word means. It means the same thing that it meant back in chapter 9, verses 8 and 9, when in describing the tabernacle, God tells us, oh, and, and this is a prefigurement of new covenant worship realities. Now, he doesn't go on to explain it. He just tells us that's what it is. So we know that the tabernacle pointed in a myriad of ways to Christ and his covenant, to heaven, to all the glories of salvation of life with God. And it's left to us with the scriptures and the spirit to, to dig them out. Well, here's another one. He doesn't go on to expound it. He simply says, oh yeah, and this um, Isaac being raised from the dead in this way, uh, this is a figure of new covenant reality. And now let me drop it and go on. No, no, tell us more, please. No, I want you to study your Bibles. I want you to think about this. I want you to compare scripture with scripture. Well, when we do that, I think we get something like this. Isaac was Abraham's only begotten son. Jesus was God the Father's only begotten son. Both Isaac and Jesus were appointed to die by God's command. Abraham willingly gave up his son. According to Romans 8.32, God willingly gave up his son. Isaac was burdened with carrying the wood for the altar on which he was to be sacrificed. Jesus was made, at least for a little while, to carry his wooden cross, the altar on which he was sacrificed. Both made three-day journeys into death. Isaac figuratively, Jesus in actuality. And Isaac was led to die on Mount Moriah. Jesus was led to die on that same mountain with a new name, Golgotha. The location is identical. Isaac was figuratively raised to life on the third day, while Jesus was actually resurrected from the dead on the third day. This is no set of coincidences. The inspired author to Hebrews is right. Isaac and these events are a type of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, because it's a type, there's not an absolute correspondence in every detail. It takes all the types and shadows, all the forecasts and prophecies and pictures of the Old Testament to make the fullness that is in Christ. So, of course, there are differences. So, for example, they both die, but clearly they die in different senses. But the parallels between Isaac's story and Christ's are sufficient for us to see the truthfulness of verse 19 when it says, this is a foreshadowing of Christ's resurrection. And as the church has seen throughout the ages by God's grace, Christ is in this story. He is properly placed here. Well, that brings us to our final three uses. First, saving faith does not exempt us from tests. 
but enables us in them. Saving faith will not exempt you from tests. Just because you believe in Jesus Christ doesn't mean that life suddenly gets incredibly easy. In fact, it's the testimony of Scripture that often after saving faith comes, so do great tests of that faith. Abraham received Isaac and then was commanded to kill him in a test. Job rose to the stature of a perfect man of faith, complete in all things, before in a great test he lost it all. Paul received revelation in heaven itself somehow, before what? Gaining a thorn in the flesh. Saving faith doesn't exempt us from tests. Don't believe any of the nonsense of those false preachers who promise you a life of ease if you'll just have faith. Those liars will receive what they deserve unless they repent. But though faith doesn't eliminate tests, it does enable us to profit from them. More than just surviving trials, more than just overcoming trials even, faith enables true believers to actually profit from them. Everything in your life is ordered by God and tends toward your salvation. I love what it says in Psalm 1, and everything that righteous man does prospers. Oh, you mean I'll never lose money? No, no, no. This is spiritual. <laughs> everything that happens to you, God is using to save you. According to the book of James, Abraham's test with Isaac confirmed his faith to him. Abraham knew he was a man of faith before. Now he knew he was a man who could withstand even this kind of test in his faith. And of course, he's an example to us saying, and so can we. In the true child of God, tests don't ultimately undermine our faith they better establish it. And you need to recognize, brothers and sisters, that many of you will be asked to follow Abraham's example here. Even more closely in some details than you might first think. Several of us here have had to give spouses or children back to God. No, we didn't slay them, but God took them in death. Did that cause us to curse God, to angrily denounce him, to give up and to lose faith? No, by the power of God, faith was confirmed in us. Heaven became more real. The resurrection became more hoped for. The shortness of life and the need to serve God now became more urgent. We profited from those tests. 
for most of you, because of your relative youth, your turn in this specific testing is probably still coming. One spouse almost always buries another. Rarely do they go together. And so you will know the test of a sort that Abraham faced. And your faith in the resurrection will be tested. What Abraham's story here teaches us is that by God's grace, peace and trust and even joy can be known in these circumstances by faith. You know, some, like our sister Marie Zimmerman, are losing their loved one with an agonizing slowness <laughs> and, humanly speaking, an irreversible certainty that, that, I don't know if you react like I do, but it's, it's just almost too painful to watch. But our sister is living it. <laughs> she doesn't get to just watch and look away. She has to every day live it. Her faith is being deeply tested. So do for her what Jesus commands you to do for her. <laughs> Pray for her that her faith may not fail. This is a hard trial. And though Maria's felt <laughs> that her faith would flounder a hundred times in the last few years, it hasn't. And that's because saving faith is God's work. Amen. And therefore it is indestructible. Our faith overcomes the world, brothers and sisters. What a promise. So know your faith will be tested. It's very likely to be tested by death. <laughs> by the deaths of people you dearly love but remember that God holds you fast and is working good for you and in you by faith by faith a second use out of this text is the obedience of faith goes beyond family ties the obedience of faith goes beyond family ties Abraham had to choose between God and his son. Abraham rightly chose God. Let's be clear about that. Abraham rightly chose God. And God calls all of you to love him more than your dearest family members. What does Jesus say in Luke 14? If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his father and mother, his sisters and his brothers, yes, even himself, he's not worthy of me. He's not really my disciple. God in Christ will have first place in your life or he will have no place. That's the deal. That's the offer. That's the commandment. He reigns. Or you stiff arm him, and he will reign later in a horrible way. 
Faith always puts God first. Husbands and wives, do you want to live fully to God in your marriage? Then love God more than your partner. Uh, by the way, that'll enable you to love them better than you ever did before. Right? If that partner forces you to choose between them and God, you choose God. You choose God. Or when God shows you in his word and by experience, and now the preacher will be meddling. Okay? So get out the bricks and the dead cats and the tomatoes. Now is the time, right? Or when God shows you in his word and by experience that yes, even your child is a sinner. Will you side with God or will you just constantly excuse your child? If you defend their sins, do you understand what you're doing? You're putting them to death as Abraham was doing to Isaac. To excuse their sin and never address it with them is to sacrifice your child on the altar of misplaced parental love. And if you ever want to see them resurrected, you must obey God and tell that child that they are a sinner who is earning the wages of death and follow that up by the good news about Jesus Christ, who is our resurrection and life. You know, one of the greatest sources of trouble in churches, and I think I'm old enough to be at least semi-qualified to say this, one of the greatest sources of trouble in churches is often rooted in this specific error, that parents love their Isaacs more than they love their God. Let us all be on guard by Abraham's example. He loved God more than Isaac. Thirdly and finally, I ask you the question, are you ready for your resurrection? The scriptures teach that when Jesus Christ returns to earth, all the dead will have their bodies raised and they'll all stand before him in judgment. In John 5, 28 and 29, Jesus says this, An hour is coming when all those who are in the tombs will hear the voice of the Son of God and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment or punishment. You see, because Jesus was raised from the dead, all men will be raised. Some to eternal life and some to eternal death. Those who have repented of their sins and believed in Jesus Christ will receive glorious bodies and live forever with God. Those who have held on to their sinful lifestyle and refused to come to Jesus for forgiveness and new life they too will receive bodies, but it will be for destruction. And they will die forever in the presence of a just God. 
Now, there are some of you who are here, undoubtedly, that are not sons of Abraham or daughters of Sarah by faith. For those of you who don't believe, for those of you who are still in your sins, for those of you who are still under the curse of death, there is hope because there is still time for you to turn to Jesus Christ. You must agree with God that your sins deserve the death penalty. You must agree with God that you have been living in rebellion against him. You must agree with God that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. And if you believe in him, he will rescue you from death. He will speak the word from heaven and you will live as Isaac lived, as Jesus lived. You will experience a kind of soul resurrection now and the guarantee of a bodily resurrection to life eternal in the future. And so we call you, come to Jesus Christ and so be ready for the resurrection. Let's pray.